It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look at the top stories in the coming week from our Daybreak anchors all around the world. And straight ahead on the program... Is inflation what the Fed is really watching this coming week? I'm Tom Busby in New York. I'm Caroline Hetke in London, where we're looking at the Bank of England's inflation fight ahead of its May rate decision. I'm Kaylee Lines in Washington, where President Biden is gearing up to meet with congressional leadership on the debt ceiling. I'm Brian Curtis in Hong Kong. Where does Asia sit on the pluses and minuses of AI? That's all straight ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend on Bloomberg 1130 New York, Bloomberg 991 Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 1061 Boston, Bloomberg 960 San Francisco, DAB Digital Radio London, Sirius XM 119, and around the world on BloombergRadio.com and via the Bloomberg Business app. Good day to you. I'm Tom Busby, and we begin today's program with the Fed's public enemy number one, the fight against inflation, and this week's consumer price index and producer price index, all about inflation. Joining me now to talk about this and whether it's what the Fed is really watching at this point, Bloomberg's global economics and policy editor, Michael McKee. Michael, welcome. Oh, thanks, Tom. Well, we're coming off another rate hike from the Fed, the 10th one since just since last March. The central bank's benchmark lending rate at a 16-year high. A, rate, uh, a range of five to five and a quarter percent, but inflation is still hot, hot, hot. What do you think of that, Michael? <laughs> I think the Fed has more work to do. That sounds like uh, Jay Powell speaking when I say that. Uh, they know that they are not there in terms of getting anywhere near their target yet. The inflation rate is still more than double the two percent target, but they do have ten rate cuts in the books, uh, rate increases rather in the books, and that. Uh, it, the the full weight of that has not hit the economy yet. So they're betting that they are now uh, in a position to be restrictive, that the, the Fed funds rate is a restricted le- restrictive level now for the economy, and that it will just take time to uh, tighten credit conditions and lead inflation to go lower. So they're going to wait and see. Um, it means that the inflation numbers become even more important. As long as they don't go back up, then uh, the Fed is not going to be raising rates again. And and they have gone up. Uh, they've gone up. They've gone down. It's it's very fluid. The uh, inflation readings. Yeah, it depends on uh, how much they were to go up. Now we're looking for in the CPI next week uh, a relatively uh, large rise in the headline number, which would probably be attributed to things like energy and food. Uh, the core is expected to go down, and the core is what the Fed is more concerned with. It's higher on a year-over-year basis, but that's expected to decline. And that would tell them that they're still on the right track. It's just going to take a while. 
And as they always say, data dependent. And by that late June meeting, we're going to get two months worth of jobs data, CPI, PPI, consumer spending reports. So there's a lot to consider for the Fed. Yeah, uh, one gets tired of saying data dependent, but they really are in this case because now they've specifically hung their next decision on the uh, data. They had been saying month after month or meeting after meeting that they anticipated having to raise rates more, that they weren't at a point where they were restrictive. Now they're at that point, uh, and it's a question of the data telling them whether they uh, are accurate in estimating that or whether they think they need to do more. And the inflation target they have, and they've had for a long time, 2%. But the latest personal consumption expenditure price index, as you said, more than double that, 4.2% in March year over year. Now, things are a lot better than they were, let's say, last summer when there was uh, you know, an all-time high or at least a 40-year you know, high. What are we looking to see in the consumer price index on Wednesday, the PPI on Thursday? Well, the CPI, as I mentioned, is likely to go up on a headline basis, and uh, the economist surveyed by Bloomberg think it'll tick down uh, to a three-tenths percent gain for the core, which is what the Fed is more concerned about. On a year-over-year basis, that brings the core CPI to 5.4 percent uh, from 5.6 percent. It's measured differently than the PCE, so the numbers are a little off, but we do get a, a sort of a much broader look at the categories of inflation in the CPI, so Everybody wants to see you know, where inflation may be, which is why it gets a lot of attention. Uh, the PPI is expected to rise a little bit, but it fell in uh, the prior month back in March. And so for April, a small rise isn't going to change the year-over-year situation for uh, final demand. It'll bring it down. So uh, at this point, it looks like with both of these on a year-over-year basis, we're making progress. The question is, is it going to be enough progress or will there be a surprise out there? And will we see inflation rise and then the Fed have to start thinking about or the markets at least start pricing a rate increase? Oh, well, we all love surprises, but not that kind. Now, uh, now rate increases, And the converse of that, of course, rate cuts. You spoke to Fed Chair Jay Powell about all this this past week. Let's listen now to what you said and and his response. Uh, Can you tell us something about what your uh, policy reaction function is, your policy framework is going forward? When you look at the economy at the next meeting, are you looking at uh, incoming data, which is by definition backward looking? Are you going to be forecasting what you think is going to happen? Are you ruling out the rate cuts that the market has priced in? I didn't catch the last part. Ruling Mar- Markets have priced in uh, rate cuts by the end of the year. Oh, Do yes. you rule sorry, that sorry, out? Sorry. Okay, I got it. So what are we looking at? I mean, we look at a combination of data and, and forecasts. Of course, the whole idea is to, is to create a good forecast based on what you see in the data. So we're always always looking at both, you know, and it will, of course, it'll be the obvious things. It'll be readings on inflation. It'll be readings on, on wages, on economic growth, uh, on the labor market, um, and uh, all of those many things. I think a particular focus for us going now over the past six, seven weeks now uh, and going forward is going to be what's happening with, uh, with credit tightening or small and medium-sized banks tightening credit standards, uh, and, and is that having an effect on, on, uh, on loans, on lending? And, you know, so we can begin to assess 
um, how that fits in with monetary policy. That, that'll, that'll be an important thing. I just, you know, we'll be looking at everything. It's, again, I would just point out, we've raised rates by five percentage points. We are shrinking the balance sheet. And now we have uh, credit conditions tightening, not just in the normal way, but perhaps a little bit more due to what's happened. And we have to factor all of that in and, and make our assessment of, uh, you know, of whether our policy stance is sufficiently restrictive. And we have to do that in a world where policy works with long and variable lags. So this is challenging, but you know, we, we will make our best assessment, and that's, that's what we'll be thinking. What about uh, the idea of rate cuts? Yeah, so um, we on the committee have a, have a view that inflation is going to come down not so quickly, but it'll take some time. And in that world, if that forecast is broadly right, it would not be appropriate and, and to, to cut rates, and we won't cut rates. If you have a different forecast, and you know, uh, markets are, have been from time to time pricing in you know, quite rapid reductions in inflation, um, you know, we'd, we'd factor that in. But that's not our forecast. And, and of course, the, the history of the last two years has been very much uh, that inflation moves down, particularly now if you look at, at non-housing services. It really, uh, it really hasn't moved much, and it's quite stable. And uh, you know, so we think we'll have to uh, demand will have to weaken a little bit, and uh, labor market conditions, conditions may have to soften a bit more to begin to see progress there. And again, in that world, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be appropriate for us to cut rates. Okay, so Powell told you this is no time to cut rates. That there's still a lot of work to do to drive inflation lower. So, uh, how much worse could it possibly get? Uh, well, it's hard to see it getting significantly worse. We're seeing the labor market loosen up a little bit, and we're seeing inflation come down some. Uh, those two things tied together. Uh, supply chains have normalized, so those aren't a major issue, and commodity prices have uh, sort of flattened out except for energy. So uh, overall, the prognosis is for inflation to keep coming down. It's, it's not the rate of uh, the level, rather, of inflation. It's the rate at which it's moving that uh, people are uh, diverging from the Fed's view. Uh, the Fed thinks it will take time, that they've gotten the low-hanging fruit, and it will take a significant time to squeeze the rest of the 2.2% or whatever inflation out of uh, the system. And the markets seem to think that uh, it'll go much faster than that. We'll see a big drop in overall uh, inflation over the coming months, uh, either because the Fed is suggest uh, successful or because we go into a recession. And either way, uh, the market wants to price in rate cuts, and uh, the Fed is uh, disagreeing with that. And one of their concerns, and one of the concerns they had in sort of uh, announcing a pause without announcing a pause is they didn't want markets to go too far. They didn't want people to start pricing in further rate cuts, but that's exactly what happened after uh, Powell suggested in that answer that uh, maybe uh, if if inflation did come down fast, then the markets might be right. Uh, he's, he's not arguing that it's going to, but just that little crack was enough for traders to slither through. Michael, thank you. That is Bloomberg's Global Economics and Policy Editor, Michael McKee. And coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, the Bank of England's fight against inflation. I'm Tom Busby, and this is Bloomberg. Bloomberg. 
It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm Tom Busby in New York. Up later in our program, the debt ceiling and what the fight over it means for the economy. But first, UK economists expect just one more quarter point rate hike from the Bank of England next week, with rates peaking at 4.5%, very different from the market view. For more, we go to Bloomberg Daybreak Europe co-host Caroline Hepker. Tom, the Bank of England is deep into its drive to tame inflation, with traders betting on a 5% potential peak rate in the UK. But the end game is still really far from clear. So joining me now is Bloomberg's chief UK economist, Dan Hansen. Great to have you on the programme, Dan. The path ahead then for the Bank of England in your view now? Yeah, I mean, I think you're right about the uncertainty. You've got in the last few data releases, you've had really big surprises on the inflation front. And actually, in the, the most recent labor market report, you had a big surprise on wages as well. So I think in the very near term, and just thinking about the next meeting, I think it's, it seems very likely to us and to the market, and to, I think most economists, that they'll lift rates again, 25 basis points. I think the question then is a lot around the guidance that they provide. Mm-hmm. Again, are they still going to focus on the idea that they'll only lift rates again if they're surprised by the data. And if, if that's the case, um, I think it is uncertain whether they will they will raise rates again. I think there's a question whether they want to be a little bit more forceful this time around, given the scale of the surprises that we've seen in the data. Um, but I think our base case is that they'll, they'll lift rates in May, mm-hmm. and they'll also lift rates in June. And the, the reason we think they'll do that is because the data, particularly on core inflation, has been very, very sticky. And I think they'll want to lean against that sort of risk of inflation persistence. And I think at the bank, there is this, they've talked a lot about over-tightening. But I think actually, if you look at the the whole, the committee as a whole, I think there's probably a view that it's better to do a little bit more than a little bit less at this point. And as you said at the start there, they've come so far. Um, they really want to just finish the job off. Yeah, I mean, the consumer price index in the UK in double digits above 10%. But there are concerns, aren't there, around banks breaking, particularly in the US, in Europe, uh, consumers struggling with food and energy bills, but also, you know, rising interest rates. Um, How concerned do you think the, the bank is going to be about certainly financial stability and other parts of the economy that may suffer after such a rapid rise? I think they'll be very, very concerned. I said they are, they, they're one of the, the only major central banks that have voiced concerns about over-tightening. Now, I think when they balance the risk of over-tightening versus doing too little, I still think they're probably erring towards worrying about doing too little. But nonetheless, even you know, chief economist Hugh Pill at the bank has warned about it. We've got some very vocal doves at the Bank of England talking about over-tightening. Um, so I think 
events in the US um, will certainly play on their mind here in the UK financial conditions have after the sort of um, where things reach fever pitch mm-hmm. following SVB and Credit Suisse things that things have eased off a little bit so I think you know there is a there is a clear path to higher rates that's not going to be a an impediment to them lifting rates further I mean I think one one area of resilience and they'll take some in some ways I guess take some comfort in though it makes their inflation fight harder is the resilience of consumer spending and the economy in general which has held up much better since the start of the year than than many have been expecting but as as I say that that makes their inflation in many ways that makes their inflation fight harder because you've got a stronger economy a stronger labor market and ultimately that means it's harder to get inflation to settle at two percent as it as it begins to drift downwards. Okay, Dan, stay there. As we're thinking about the Bank of England's decision next week, I also want to bring in an interview that I did with Stephen King, who's the Senior Economic Advisor at HSBC. He's a really renowned economist. Of course, you're, you're nodding vigorously. He has a new book out called We Need to Talk About Inflation. And he was so interesting on this point of you know, accountability, responsibility of central bankers, the stickiness of inflation, where we go from here. Just want you to have a little listen to a snippet from that interview. Every crisis is different, but at the same time, there are some similarities, and you can tease them out. One of the similarities is that most crises, inflation-wise, start with a series of excuses for why inflation is different from what people had expected. So it's energy price shocks, it's food price shocks, it's price gouging, whatever it might be. But actually, looking back through history, and I've looked through a lot of history, uh, it's probably fair to say that money plays some kind of role, that if you have overdose monetary policy or you're debasing the coinage or you're coin clipping or whatever it was you know a thousand years ago uh, what you're now seeing is a situation whereby I suspect monetary policy was just far too loose during the pandemic and in particular remained far too loose after the panic pandemic came to an end so you had the sort of situation whereby central bankers feared a great depression mark two but that never materialized. We had a series of declines in GDP, which was similar to the Great Depression, but we did not have the multiple bank failures. We didn't have the mass bankruptcies, the mass unemployment. We didn't have any of those kinds of things coming through. Um, and as a consequence, um, I think that we've ended up with excessively loose monetary conditions, mm. which have helped drive the underlying inflationary process. And of course, when inflation first picked up, people said it's just semiconductor prices, it's just prices of secondhand cars or whatever. But we now know that it's not just semiconductor prices or second-hand cars. It's a whole range of goods, a whole range of services. And now, in some countries at least, uh, wages also moving up in nominal terms. So inflation, I would suggest, is much more embedded yes. uh, than the majority of central bankers and forecasters expected. Do you think that central bankers have taken on board that idea that, that monetary policy was too loose for too long, that it, they are partly to blame? Well, I think that they are keen to avoid blame. And part of the reason for avoiding blame, of course, is that if they're blamed, they then come under tremendous political scrutiny. You know, what did these technocrats get wrong? And of course, the most important thing for a central bank is to try to retain the independence of the central bank. So I think there is a a weird kind of desire to blame everything other than themselves for what has actually transpired. But when you think about it, um, the fact that interest rates remain so long, so low for so long, that during the course of 2021, inflation was steadily picking up in the US, in the UK, in the Eurozone. And action in terms of monetary tightening didn't really take place until the very end of that year or into 2022. I would suggest that there was effectively too little action too late, which is why now we've got the situation whereby everyone's panicking about how far rates will have to go up, because you're trying to sort of conduct a handbrake turn uh, when the economy effectively has been sort of not so much growing quickly, 
but has been showing signs of building inflationary pressures for much longer than people had expected. That was Stephen King, Senior Economic Advisor at HSBC, who was uh, talking to us on Bloomberg Radio about his new book, We Need to Talk About Inflation. So very uh, interesting on that topic, of course. Right, back to you, Dan. So just going back then to the Bank of England um, and talking about the kind of bigger themes around why inflation is so sticky right now. This, This is the central challenge for economists now and to understand how sticky it will remain. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think the reason you've had this, what I would call a perfect storm, where inflation has gone up for for reasons outside of the control of central banks to, to, most, to the most extent, things through energy prices, food prices, what traditionally we call externally driven inflation. But at the same time, you've had a very, very extremely, I should say, tight labour market. Mm. And those two things have combined. You've had, and you've seen workers bargain for a bigger share of the pie. And you've seen wage wage gains go up. So I think for all central banks, it's really a case of watching, first of all, in terms of sort of order of where you might see things um, begin to cool off. You've got, first, it's the economy, then it's the labour market and unemployment, then it's wages, then it's inflation. And it, it tends to sort of happen in that order. So at least in the UK, with, with demands holding up, there isn't a sign yet that the labour market can really loosen to any great extent that will put enough pr- downward pressure on wage growth to ultimately deliver mm-hmm. inflation back to target. Dan, thank you so much for your time. Bloomberg's chief UK economist, Dan Hansen, thank you so much for being with me. I'm Caroline Hepke here in London. You can catch us every weekday morning for Bloomberg Daybreak Europe, beginning at 6am in London. That's 1am on Wall Street. Tom. Thank you, Caroline. And coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, the fight over the debt ceiling is intensifying. I'm Tom Busby, and this is Bloomberg. Broadcasting live from the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Bloomberg 1130 to Washington, D.C. Bloomberg 991 to Boston. Bloomberg 1061 to San Francisco. Bloomberg 960 to the country. Sirius XM Channel 119 to London. DAB Digital Radio and around the globe. The Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. Tom Busby in New York with your global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. The clock is ticking on the U.S. debt ceiling. For more, let's head to our Bloomberg 991 newsroom in Washington and sound on host Kaylee Lines. Yeah, that's right, Tom. We learned this past week that the X date could be just weeks away. Treasury Secretary Jenny Yellen writing in a letter to Congress that the Treasury may not be able to meet its obligations by early June possibly as early as June 1st. That letter seemed to set President Biden in motion. He called up congressional leadership, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, and Democratic Leader Senator Chuck Schumer and Congressman Hakeem Jeffries and asked them to meet with him this coming Tuesday, May 9th. It's the sit-down we've all been waiting and waiting and waiting for. The question is, how much progress can really be made between Biden and Speaker McCarthy? They want very different things. The president has consistently called for a clean debt ceiling raise with no negotiation, and McCarthy wants to talk spending cuts. So how do they meet in the middle? Let's get some perspective from our all-star panel. Bloomberg White House reporter Josh Wingrove and congressional reporter Steve Dennis are both joining us. So, Josh, let's start with you. I understand it is a step forward for President Biden to call this meeting, but he called it for this coming week. 
more than a full week after Yellen's letter was delivered and the June 1st suggestion really came into the picture. Why the wait? Doesn't this feel like a little late to the game? Yeah, I mean, we're starting to really come up against it here, absolutely. And, you know, there's reasons why they're waiting until then, including the speaker's travel. And Steve can talk to us here shortly about uh, how they're sort of running out of time that the House, Senate, and President are all in the same city at once. So that's sort of adding pressure to the clock. But, you know, heading into this, I think we should temper expectations because the White House message has not been, hey, we're coming in with an offer, or hey, you know, these are the kinds of things we hope that McCarthy is going to negotiate on, or hey, we think we should do a short-term extension. Instead, they're saying that Biden is going into the meeting saying that he wants to underscore the importance of not defaulting uh, on the speaker. So, you know, that, that sounds like people are still dug in. That sounds almost like uh, talking past each other rather than talking with each other. So I think we should temper expectations. But there are signs to look for as to whether they'll have some kind of deal. The White House hasn't closed the door to certain extreme sort of unilateral measures if it comes to that. They haven't closed the door to a short-term uh you know, stopgap type of extension or suspension of the debt ceiling. So these things are simmering, but we're running up against it. And there really is no sign that either side right now is blinking. So, Steve, if on the White House side, this maybe is going to be more of a talking to than actually talks or any kind of negotiation. Is that true on the congressional side as well? Are we likely to see budging on the end of McCarthy and also McConnell, who is going to be in the room, too, even though largely he has been removed from this conversation so far? Yeah. So, you know, I think the Democrats really want McConnell to sort of roll up his sleeves and do what he's done many times in the past and sort of negotiate a way out of a cliff. And McConnell's made clear uh, to us in uh, press conferences that he is not going to do that role this year, that basically he sees his role as being uh, sort of a wingman for McCarthy and that any deal is not going to come out of the Senate. He even said the Senate's irrelevant this time and that the deal has to be between McCarthy and Biden. The The, the issue is that markets are already moving. We're already yeah. seeing bonds selling off for next month. And I've covered a lot of these in the past. And when markets really start moving, that amps the pressure up on both sides dramatically. What we really have is sort of like a decade-long fight over the leverage over the debt limit. Yeah. Going back to 2011, mm-hmm. when Joe Biden ended up cutting a deal with Mitch McConnell for like a 10-year deal on spending cuts in return for a debt limit increase. Right. The, uh, the sort of the lesson that the Democrats learned from that and took from that is that that really sort of handcuffed the last six years of Barack Obama's presidency. Mm -hmm. They don't want to go down that road again. They don't want to be held hostage again and again and again. And that's what I hear in the hallways from all the Democratic senators, that they have to dig in so that even they don't even like the idea of a short term debt limit because they see that as just, you know, more damage for the economy. Even getting close in 2011 really tanked the S&P, tanked consumer confidence. Well, it was two weeks before the X date that ultimately the U.S.'s credit rating was downgraded. So it's right. And you already you already have the you know, some of the credit rating agencies making similar warnings this time around. Um, but you know, in the past it has taken markets to put the pressure on, uh, lawmakers before Mm -hmm. they've budged. And, and, and when you look at McCarthy, 
he, you know, barely became speaker. It was 15 yeah. ballots. And uh, it was really hard for him to get the 217 votes he needed to pass his his bill. So right. it, it kind so, of raises a question of how much wiggle room he, he really has. And Josh, just on the subject of, of wiggling room and negotiations, which McCarthy says that he wants, why isn't the White House using this as an opportunity to push for revenue raising measures for higher taxes? If what the Republicans are saying they ultimately want is deficit reduction, there are two sides to that. I think they I think they would. I mean, the the White House basically wants to decouple the debt ceiling fight from the spending discussion, right? They they view McCarthy as sort of you know hanging the proverbial hostage off a ledge, you know, threatening to to, to drop them, and the White House says, you know, like like you know, let go, uh, bring them back on uh, on on solid ground, and then we'll talk. That is sort of where we're at on it. So you know, the, Biden put out his budget has three trillion in cumulative deficit reduction over 10 years. McCarthy's is more in the four range. They're completely different ways of getting there. Biden more on the revenue side. You talked about McCarthy more on the cut side. Uh, And so, you know, they're they're still talking past each other. But the whole question is, is the debt ceiling a bargaining chip or not? Biden is trying to saddle McCarthy with this collapse that may happen here by saying it's Republicans who are holding the debt ceiling hostage. Democrats favor raising it or suspending it and then having the conversation about spending. But McCarthy's position is we have the House. We get to decide what the priorities are for the House and that we see these things as linked. Mm. It's pretty intractable right now. We just we just don't see where where it's going to go. And, of course, we're running out of time for them to stick the landing. Yeah. That really is the, the tricky part here. Well, it strikes me that Josh just said, you know, they have the House. But, Steve, they don't have the House by that much. He has a very small margin to work with, which comes back to this idea of how hard it was to get him the votes he needed the first time around. So realistically, where is there room within his caucus for things to come out of that package? What are Republicans willing to lose if if there are negotiations to be had? Um, you know, the thing that McCarthy has, he has not raised, like, he has not said, I need all of these cuts in my bill. He The only thing he said is there cannot be a clean debt limit. And, and if you think about the position McCarthy's in, where he has just a four-vote majority, really, um, he he really can't come back completely empty-handed. He needs to have something he can point to to his conference that says, hey, we, we have some leverage. We're going to get some of the things that we want, either some kind of a handshake deal, a committee, you know, uh, but also it's probably something real. And, and the minute you have anything real attached to it, then the entire White House argument that they're not going to give in anything uh, for the debt limit, you know, because the limit will be a bargaining chip into the future. And that's where, you know, some of these sort of break glass scenarios start looming large, because if it really is intractable and McCarthy simply will not agree to a clean debt limit increase and the White House keeps to their position, you know, then you start thinking, okay, well, will they do these premium bonds to mm-hmm. pretend the debt is not as big as it is? Will they do a, a platinum coin? And until the White House really shuts down those options, mm-hmm. it, they start looming ever larger as we get closer to that cliff diving moment. Yep. And we're getting closer every day and getting closer to that important conversation happening on May 9th. We'll see how much progress really can be made. Thank you both so much for joining us. Can't wait for Tuesday. Bloomberg White House reporter Josh Wingrove and congressional reporter Steve Dennis. Thank you both. And Tom, we'll send it back to you. 
Thank you, Kaylee. Reporting from our Bloomberg 99.1 newsroom in Washington. And you can hear Sound On with Joe Matthew and Kaylee weekdays 1 to 3 p.m. Wall Street time right here on Bloomberg Radio. And coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, how hot could tourism get in Japan this summer? And what does it mean for the country's economy? I'm Tom Busby, and this is Bloomberg. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm Tom Busby in New York. Chatbots shaking things up in Asia, also sounding alarm bells for some. For more, let's go to Hong Kong and Bloomberg Daybreak Asia host Brian Curtis and his colleague, Doug Krisner. Tom, more and more companies are rushing out new artificial intelligence projects, including some in Asia. And some companies are also holding back, preaching caution. AI capabilities are moving so fast, it's making some people nervous. One example, Jeffrey Hinton. He's one of the pioneers of modern AI. He recently quit his job at Google's Brain AI division. Hinton saying that he wants to be able to speak out more freely about the dangers the technologies can bring. Doug and I thought we would take a closer look at some of the positives and negatives, particularly with some attention given to Asia. Joining us is Vlad Sevov, Bloomberg tech editor, who is a specialist on artificial intelligence. So we've had a lot of interesting points here of late, not only the one that Doug mentioned there, but Samsung banning people from using AI, uh, worried about what would happen if some of the information is stored on servers outside the country. In your view, are we moving too fast here, or is this to be expected? Well, with respect to Samsung, I think it's a good precaution that the company is taking. What really Samsung is concerned about, it has to do with the technology itself. So maybe we just dive straight into uh, the geeky parts, which are my favorite. I will also correct you, I am not a specialist in this sort of AI. I don't think anybody is. <laughs> it's so novel, it's so new. Um, and there is so much that goes behind that label of AI. It's kind of like saying computer. It is so general, it covers so many different applications and technologies. The thing that we are already discussing with AI in the current moment is really the chat GPT class is these large language models that the likes of Google and chat GPT developer OpenAI have really popularized. Um, with respect to that, and this is where Samsung is being cautious, if you put any information into it, it is not so much insecure with respect to OpenAI asking the information, but that info then trains the bot to answer queries from others. So if you're Samsung and you put any proprietary software or code in there, 
somebody like me can come along and say, "Hey, tell me about Samsung's proprietary code in Android devices." And the bot doesn't have any sort of guardrails for the most part, and it will just spit out what information it has. Recently, there was an open letter. It was signed, I believe, by Elon Musk and thousands of others, calling for a pause on development of artificial intelligence. It's a bit like putting the genie back in the bottle, though. At this point, don't you think? Is there any way that there could be some kind of global agreement just to slow down the rate of adoption here? Oh, you're exactly right.、Um, there is no chance of that happening.、Uh, we have several examples here in China、um, of. Startup founders essentially saying, "I just needed to start an AI company. It's a once in a decade, once in several decades opportunity. I don't have a name for the company yet. I just knew I needed to quit my previous job and jump into this." It it opens up such an opportunity because everybody is at the starting line today. When you think about tech over the past at least decade, probably longer, there hasn't been the opportunity for somebody to surge and become the next Facebook slash Meta or the next Google or Twitter even,、um, just because the leaders are the leaders. They have the money. They have the investment, and they just keep reinvesting, and they keep hiring the best talent. Now we've had big waves of layoffs, especially in the U.S., with really highly experienced, highly talented, and well-connected people in Silicon Valley and beyond. And those people are now looking at AI, and the two moments coincide. So AI gives this. Big new opportunity where everybody, from the big guys like Google and Microsoft and the Tencent and Alibaba's here in China, starting from ground zero effectively and seeing how they turn the tech into something that is a product, and then you have the opportunity for small guys to get in there and just have a better idea. Vlad, thanks so much for sharing your insights with us. Vlad Savoff, there, Bloomberg Tech Editor. I'm Brian Curtis, along with Doug Krisner. You can catch us every weekday here for Bloomberg Daybreak Asia, beginning at 6 a.m. in Hong Kong and 6 p.m. on Wall Street. Tom, thank you, Brian and Doug, and that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. Join us again Monday morning at 5 a.m. Wall Street time for the latest on markets overseas and the news you need to start your day. I'm Tom Busby. Stay with us. Top stories and global business headlines are coming up right now. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies, from big tech to startups, will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions, alongside Snap's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com/techsf.